listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jojo Moyes is the author of The Last Letter from Your Lover, Honeymoon in Paris, and Me Before You. Her new novel is The Girl You Left Behind. Thank you for joining me, Jojo. Nice to speak to you again. Jojo, this novel is so rich and complex. You have two different timelines. You have two different character sets and a linchpin that joins them. What image first came to you and drew you to this story? Well, it was all from a news story that I read in a newspaper about three years ago, maybe four years ago now, and it was a court case. And it began with a young woman reporter, an American woman reporter, or girl reporter as they were then known, in the 1940s, who had been sent to witness the liberation of Dachau. And instead, while all her colleagues were sent down the road to the camp, she was asked by one of the generals if she would mind some stolen artworks in a warehouse. And this was actually Hitler's store of stolen artworks and contained possibly 40% of the entire looted art of Europe at that time. And at the end of the day, this general came back and and as a thank you, he told her that she could just take something home with her, you know, wander through the artworks and take what she wanted as a souvenir. And the painting that she took, which was a little cupid or cherub, 50 years later, when her descendants tried to sell it, turned out to be a priceless Renaissance work of art. And the image in that story was so strong that um, I just had this image of this, you know, girl reporter. And and also the fact that in the case of painting, especially in the, the case of stolen paintings, it's never just about a painting. It's never just about oil on canvas. It's always about what it has meant to other people or what feelings other people have imbued it with. This novel is so filled with gray areas. Talk about the French occupation by the Germans during World War One. Well, you see, everybody knows that French, uh, France was occupied during World War Two, and I hadn't realized the extent of German occupation during World War One. You know, we all know that it was a terrible battle on the Western Front, but there was a whole swathe of French towns and villages that were under German occupation for several years at a time. And what that actually meant was that Germans could come into your house, they could dictate what they took at any time, you know, they could help themselves, they could decide when you went out, when you came in, when you were allowed to go and get food, what you ate. They managed to block off all means of communication, so every village was isolated and didn't know what was going on in the next. And yet, The French lived with these men cheek by jowl for years. And I just thought, what an amazing setup, you know, because you have the suspicion and the tension of the fear of doing something wrong and getting in trouble, but also the fact that you inevitably build relationships when you're in that kind of a setup. And in the case of young women, and Sophie, my lead character, and her sister are trying to keep a hotel running when the German commandant announces that they will have to feed his troops every evening. Well, then that's, you know, sets the seen for an awful lot of suspicion because young women are um, especially at risk when it comes to those sorts of, you know, scenarios for obvious reasons. Uh, You also talk about the Matisse School of Painting that features in heavily in in this novel. Is the artist real? 
the artist isn't real, although I have to say by the end of the book I could picture it so clearly that I, I kind of almost convinced myself that he was. But the Matisse school is real, and I did lots of research um, into the turn of the century Paris, where there seems to have been a kind of amazing meeting of literary and artistic minds. And, you know, the 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 artists who I talk about all being part of that Matisse school were real. I think one of the things that you do really well in in this opening se- uh, segment is to create this village, St. Perron, and the, the whole uh, large cast of people, but you concentrate on a couple of main characters, but all the other characters seem really real and rich, and you do, do this throughout the novel. So talk about creating main characters who are full and rich, but also secondary characters who in a couple quick strokes of your pen come to life for us. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you think so. I mean, I, I've I've learned over the years that there are certain things that I have to do when I start a book, and one of them is to really create the characters from scratch. So I have a whole routine now where I, I buy myself a nice book and some nice pens, and I say I have kind of four or five main characters. What I will do is sit down and work out who they are, where they come from, what they look like, what they wear, what their motivations are, um, how they eat, uh, what their parents did, you know, all kinds of fine detail that probably won't get used in the book. But what it does is it all feeds into my own mental image of who that person is. Because what I've found over the years is that if you don't know that person well enough, and, you know, say by page 100 you want them to meet another main character and sparks are going to fly... What happens is that they don't fly. <laughs> you know, it's like a really bad blind date. They just don't spark off each other in the right way. And that's always to do with not understanding who your character is from the start. So I had to kind of build up quite a, a strong mental image of these people before I, I put them into Samperon. But weirdly, that book, I, I had been anxious about writing as far back as 1916. You know, I've gone back as far as the 40s in previous books, but I I was worried that I wouldn't be able to sufficiently convey the preoccupations of someone from that far back. And in the event, those characters were so clear to me that it was the easiest part of the book to write. It was actually much easier than the um, modern part. Really? You know, one of the things I loved about that segment of the book is the the absolute shades of gray of Sophie and their commandant and the way they feed the Germans in the hotel and the interplay between them and the rest of the village. I thought that that was really um, masterfully handled. And I'd like you to talk about creating characters who aren't always doing exactly the best thing, but they're doing the best thing they can do. Well, that do you know, that is exactly the thing that fascinates me. It's it's good people making bad decisions for good reasons. You know, um, I think most people I know, even if they do really stupid things, think that they're doing something for the best. And I guess that's that's the gray area that I'm interested in. It's it's people who who are flawed, who don't make the right decisions, but um, who could give you a very good reason for for what they do. And in you know, the the central what, what what I like to have is a question, what would you do in the same position? And and Sophie is given this well, this Sophie's choice, if you'll forgive me, which is her husband has been imprisoned in a notorious concentration camp. She may well have the means to get him out if she makes certain trades with the commandant. But as her sister says, if you make these trades and save your husband's life, it's entirely possible he won't want you afterwards. And 
that's a terrible choice to have to make. And so, yeah, those those are the areas that fascinate me. And I'm kind of not interested in characters who are perfect or who do the right thing every time. I'm 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 interested in people like me <laughs> who get it wrong quite a lot. Well, uh, I think on the other side of the equation, in the events that occur in London in 2006, you also have uh, another great world of, about which many of us might not know anything, and this is the recovery of art for mm. a profit. I, I talk about the legal aspects of that and um, researching that whole world. Well, a long time ago, um, in a previous life, I was an arts journalist. And in the early 90s, one of the issues that came to prominence, uh, on my beat at least, was the issue of restitution. That is, the return of artwork stolen during wartime to its original owners. And, you know, it, it sounds like it should be a black and white issue. But what's happened is that there's a whole legal industry that has sprung up around these cases. And often, when the initial acquisition might have been tainted, as they call it, you know, i.e. stolen. It, the painting or work of art may have changed hands 10 times since that took place, and all those times might have been in good faith. And again, if you look at the gray areas, you might have a family who didn't even know that their family had ori originally owned the artwork but somehow become aware of it, and the people who own it now might have huge emotional you know, investment in it. So who who does it belong to? You know, that's the question. It's it's one of those things that isn't quite as straightforward as, as you would like to believe. And, and it also brings to to the forefront the clash of emotional value and economic value. And this is, I think, a really interesting contrast mm -hmm. uh, in terms of works of art. Well, this is one of the fascinating things about the restitution industry, which is that often the legal fees involved in returning a work of art can be greater than the value of the work of art itself. And we're not talking small amounts, we're talking millions of dollars. So, yeah, that, that fascinated me. But also the issue of art in general, the fact that a piece of art is only worth what we you know, invest in it, what we believe it to be worth. I mean, I, my dad was involved in the art world, and I remember doing my own kind of squiggle pictures and saying to him, well, why is my artwork not worth the same as a Jackson Pollock? <laughs> you know? And he would try and explain that it was to do with who it came from and, and what Jackson Pollock had done over the years to, to kind of invest a, a provenance in his work. And, and it's a hard thing to explain. And at the bottom line, it makes no sense. Of course, my work should be worth no more or no less than somebody else's squiggles and paint gloss on a, on a thing. But there you go. It, that's how the art world works. Uh, I really like the characters that you create for the modern segment and the way that um, you've set up in the plot some really great conflicts as things move back and forth and back and forth and, and this novel becomes one of the most gray area novels I think I've ever read in oh, terms great. of the literature <laughs> and, and the emotional aspect. Talk about uh, creating the characters and then figuring out what the emotional and uh, plot arc of this is. Well, you know, if you're writing a story about relationships between men and women, I always find that the thing that is really interesting is not what brings them together, but what keeps them apart. You know, when you look at the great works of literature like Pride and Prejudice, what we're interested in is, is how Elizabeth Bennet and Darcy keep coming together and then being thwarted at the very last minute, whether it's by his pride or by circumstance or the actions of her family. And... 
So it becomes harder as a novelist to, to maintain that tension in an age where there is actually very little stopping people getting together. Um, and what I enjoyed in this case is that um, if you put people on either side of a legal battle and a legal battle that has plenty of, of kind of moral gray areas, then you've you've already got that inbuilt tension um, and, and the way they strike off each other, you know, kind of wanting to be together but equally being kind of furious because they can't see each other's moral and legal viewpoint um, was actually really good fun to write. Now, the way the story is told, the older parts, the 1916 parts, are told in the first person and the rest is told in the third person. And that, again, is an interesting decision for you as a writer. And perhaps that comes out of your feeling more at ease back in the past. Well, funny enough, I, I always feel that um, writing in the first person is, is an easier way to bring the reader on board. And because I started that book feeling anxious that I wouldn't be able to carry the reader along with me in in what was really a very alien landscape, I felt that I needed to deploy as many helpful techniques as I could. And that was the initial reason for, for doing Sophie's part in the first person. But actually, you know, she just kind of took off and ran away with the book. <laughs> so I possibly needn't have worried. But I, I wanted it to be the two sides to be very clearly delineated, especially when the two stories start interweaving in the last third of the book and you start to kind of switch more um, rapidly between the two scenes. I, I wanted it to be easy for the reader to tell where they were at any given time. One of the things that, that strikes me is how, indeed, how alien the landscape in France, occupied France and St. Perone in World War I is, mm -hmm. yet the ease with which it it is revealed to us and with which we understand it, this is a really interesting piece of world building. How, talk about, uh, did you create maps? Did you, how, how much of this world did you create external to the novel and in what way did you create it externally? Well, I always try to do a lot of research with novels. I just find that it doesn't come alive off the page if you don't put the hours in. And so one of the things I did was I went backwards and forwards to France quite a lot because you just you just get a different sensory picture if you're actually in somewhere. But I also found that there are a lot of archives online now of photographs from that period. And as valuable as the, the written research is, Sometimes, you know, the old saying, a picture can tell a thousand words. If if you have a, a picture of a, a kind of bombed out village and the, the things that the women were wearing as they stood in front of their shop fronts or you look at the landscape or, you know, the, how the soldiers looked when they were at rest, that can really fill in a lot of the detail for you. But the other thing that was invaluable to me was um, a book that I came across uh, a review for. And I ended up buying this book almost on a, on a whim before I'd realized I wanted to write this book. And it's a factual book called The Long Silence, and it's by a woman called Helen MacPhail, who has made it her life's work to, to find out what happened in northern France during the First World War, because the, the destruction was so total in northern France that many of the records uh, of life there before the Second World War simply don't exist anymore. You know, they were bombed or they were destroyed or they were burnt. And so many of the records that have existed from the Second World War just didn't exist in the first. And so she's made it her work to, to get 
diaries and personal testimonies and and research families and as a result although you know if you weren't interested in the period it wouldn't be the most gripping read but for someone like me it it just it really helped bring the whole thing to life and some of the stories in the book for example when Sophie hides the contraband pig from the commandant by pretending it's a baby and you know cuddling it while she's being interrogated a piglet I should say she couldn't actually pick up a whole pig that was a variation on a true story where a grown adult pig which was being hidden by French villagers uh, they, they got a tip off that the Germans were coming to raid their house so they dressed this dead adult pig up in a bonnet and nightdress put it in bed and when the Germans burst in all this this entire family was weeping and wailing around the bed and pretending that their grandmother had just died. (laughs) And because it was a kind of gentlemanly war in the First World War, the Germans were horrified to have intruded on such a scene and backed out with their apologies. Wow. Now, uh, you you mentioned something I thought was very interesting, and I think you convey this very well, that the World War I was a a much more, as as we see it in this book at least, a gentlemanly war. Mm -hmm. And it was fought, I think, under rules that seem almost inconceivable to us now. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there there was a lot of brutality, but there were also, yeah, as you say, kind of rules of engagement that that were gentlemanly and old-fashioned and yeah, I don't think the the female townspeople were often at the same risk that they would be now. That said, that's not to say brutality didn't take place, but I think it was on a far lesser scale than, than we would recognize from today's war arena. And, and on the modern side, the, the legal battles and the uh, press coverage of this, I think you do a great job of showing an aspect of this art restoration that is just completely not understood and uh, taking the uh, perspective that might prove to be somewhat unpopular. <laughs> well, I did wonder about that because, you know, it's very easy to, to write something where, you know, the poor girl lost her painting and then it was returned to her. That, that's the simple thing to write, but I'm kind of more interested in in the other side of it. And, and luckily, um, you know, the book has been out in the UK for over a year, and nobody has been offended by the perspective that I took because, as I said, I was just hoping to explore a grey area. But I think it's more interesting to say, okay, this woman traditionally should be the one to give it back. But for all these reasons, I think possibly she's the one who deserves the painting. That was a kind of interesting position to take. And, and I, I love the way that you've uh, crafted in, when you talked about interweaving the two stories. Uh, as readers, it's really uh, satisfying for us to start to put together the characters and put together the stories and see all these different gray areas kind of coalescing. And I'm wondering, as a writer, how much of that stuff you calibrate in terms of pacing, saying, okay, now we're going to let the readers put this together, and how much just happens on the page? No, it, I'll be honest, it never happens on the page. I'm, I'm in awe of writers who can just let it run. I can't do that. I have to plot really carefully. I knew what revelations were coming at every stage. And in fact, you know, I've written 11 books, and this was the hardest book to structure by a country mile. I just, um, I, you know, was on my floor in my office with bits of paper and post-it notes on the wall and whiteboards which were covered in scribble and and you know I finished this book once 
and I handed it over and then I changed my mind and deleted half of it. I deleted 70,000 words and restarted it because I wasn't convinced that it worked in its present form. Um, I can safely tell you it was of all my books, it was the one that nearly broke me. But the one thing I can say as a writer is I've never, ever regretted being tougher on myself than I needed to be. And I think it was the right decision because the, the, the way the plot fits together now, I hope makes sense and has a few surprises for the reader. Um, and as it existed before, I don't think it, it worked in the same way. Well, one of the things I really like about this novel, and I think your novels in general, is that they combine aspects of several kind of different genres, uh, romance, and this is, has mm -hmm. a legal thriller, has, has historical novel, but we don't feel that any of that stuff uh, predominates, that what we just get is just a, a really good, full story full of great characters. And I'm wondering if... As a writer, you're thinking about these, you know, okay, now I'm kind of in legal thriller mode and now I'm in historical mode and now we've got to get these two together mode. Well, you know, that's really interesting that you say that because um, in the UK at least, one of my biggest problems in my early books was that they didn't know how to pitch me because, as you say, yes, it has a love story, but it's not quite a romance. It has um, legal thriller elements, but it's not quite a legal thriller. I, I just tend to write the story that I write, but what's been really gratifying over this last 18 months, especially in the States, is that people seem to not mind the fact that these books aren't easily pigeonholed anymore and they just seem to be coming along for the ride. And that's something I'm really grateful for because I was very worried for a while that my my kind of difficulty in marketing uh, might have, you know, hampered my career but um thank goodness no one seems to mind anymore well I, I think one what really conquers all in this book is your sense of story and we have and it's um almost fractal we have stories within stories mm -hmm. stories that become part of bigger stories mm -hmm. and stories that interlock one ends another begins and i'd like you to talk about just your sense of what makes a good story well, I, when I'm reading, personally, I love not knowing where a story is going to go, and I love the feeling that I'm in safe hands and I'm not going to be disappointed by the ending. Um, I mean, two of my favorite books of the last year, fiction books, were A.M. Holmes' May We Be Forgiven, which just feels like you're on a kind of crazy roller coaster ride and not, not entirely sure where you're going. And I loved Gone Girl as well, which... Again, I, you know, it's audacious and you reach a point of a third of the way through where you realize you've been completely misled by an unreliable narrator. And that's my favorite kind of thing. And, you know, if I can achieve half of that, that, that makes me very happy. Well, I, I also like, too, that I think that your narrators and all your people seem to be as reliable as they can be. <laughs> diplomatic <laughs> yeah well you know we all have our own truth don't we 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 all see things as we see them and what always fascinates me in family history for example is if you tell you know if I tell my parents I remember something from my childhood and they'll look at me in complete surprise and say well that didn't happen or that happened a completely different way and and I'm sure I'm right and they're sure they're right but we all we all have our own truth and and I guess when you're when you're looking at a historical subject, then that's going to become even more amplified. I've been speaking with Jojo Moyes. Her new novel is The Girl You Left Behind. Thank you for joining me, Jojo. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak to you again.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.